0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by the
2: Michigan Cherry Committee. Learn more about the wonderfully tart Montmorency cherry at choosecherries.com.
0: This week on Meet in 3, we're turning our attention to how the global pandemic is impacting our mental health. And how food brings us comfort during these times. I've never understood why people have said I'm brave for solo dining.
2: Food can kind of be a source of solace, or it can be a source of excitement or an activity to to keep you busy. When there's a crisis, typically the restaurant industry is one of the industries that springs into action in terms of being like, we'll come in, we'll take care of you.
0: Tune in to Meet in 3 to learn more about the psychological effects of COVID-19. Available wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast It's Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the good fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Julia Blanton from the Community Environmental Council in Santa Barbara. In today's episode, we'll talk to Julia about food rescue, how it's been used to address food insecurity and put restaurants back to work during the pandemic. And we'll hear Julia Blanton's Julia moment. Stay with us, we'll be right back. The foundation extends its support to everyone coping with the COVID pandemic, and to those exercising their rights of free speech and protest for solutions to racial injustice. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. What would Julia think of all the tumult? Well, she certainly lived through some challenging times. World War II, McCarthyism, civil rights, Vietnam, the AIDS crisis. To cope, Julia relied on her community. Whether it was her neighbors in Cambridge or food world colleagues, she saw herself as part of the wider world, not an island of one. If there was a major problem at hand, you joined forces to make it better. In her lifetime, Julia supported many causes, some more privately than others, like Planned Parenthood. More publicly, she advocated for the American wine industry, to preserve culinary history, and for women to be given the recognition they deserved as food professionals she was also an advocate for the bounty of Santa Barbara, somewhere she loved and wanted to share with the world. Certainly, Santa Barbara is known for its riches. This extends beyond its luxury estates shimmering in the California sun to its vineyards, crops, and vibrant marine life. But as much as Santa Barbara looks like a charmed city, it too has its challenges. It's expensive to live there, and the economy is heavily dependent on tourism. Between the recent wildfires, mudslides, and now the pandemic, Santa Barbara has its share of need. Today we're turning our attention to that need as it's only become more acute in the wake of COVID-19. Someone working on the front lines of Santa Barbara's COVID relief effort is Julia Blandon, the Santa Barbara County Food Rescue Program Coordinator at the Community Environmental Council, which may be best known for organizing Santa Barbara's Earth Day Festival but was founded 50 years ago to advocate for local environmental solutions, including how to create a more sustainable food system. Julia holds a degree in nutrition from Cal Poly San Luis Obispo and worked as a diet specialist in the nutrition department at Cottage Hospital. We met Julia when the foundation sought ways to help put local restaurants back to work while also helping those in need a shout out to Katie Hirschfeld at Cultivate Events, our partner at the Santa Barbara Culinary Experience, for the introduction. When we entered the conversation, the CEC was already working with the Santa Barbara Alliance for Community Transformation, also known as SB Act, another nonprofit focused on the most marginalized, including the homeless. Together, they created the Community Food Collaborative, and the foundation was pleased to make a grant that helped support its launch. Julia Blanton joins us today to tell us more about the Community Food Collaborative and talk about the pandemic's impact on food security in Santa Barbara. Welcome to the podcast, Julia.
1: Hi, good morning, Todd. Thank you.
2: So just big picture, how how are things going in in Santa Barbara right now?
1: Things are coming to a new normal. We're getting a little more comfortable with the current situation is and being able to respond to it um, needs are, are still there but we're just adjusting as, as necessary
2: well that's good to hear it's feeling a little bit more like normal I kind of I, I see what you're saying where I am too so I, I was curious because your your role already you were already doing what I guess you guys have termed or maybe it's a, a term I didn't know that well food rescue so I, maybe you could just talk about um what the CC was already doing in your role before the pandemic in food rescue, just to kind of set up what you're already working on.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Santa Barbara County Food Rescue is a collaborative food recovery network um, with support from private, public, and nonprofit sectors. The goal is building relationships between donors with extra food and charitable organizations to prevent produce and restaurant quality food from going to the landfill and um, instead getting it to those facing hunger throughout the county. So essentially just making sure that food that has already been produced and utilized all of the resources gets to its end goal of feeding people.
2: And so I assume that the kind of how the Community Environmental Council came to that, it was kind of from the waste side of things initially, and then it was kind of joined up with the need side of things. Was that the original kind of approach?
1: Exactly, yeah. in the last, I think it was 2016, Community Environmental Council partnered with the Food Bank and over 200 community organizations to assess the food system in Santa Barbara. So everything from growing food to disposing of food and finding or looking at ways that we could make a more resilient food system in Santa Barbara County. Um, With that, there were 16 strategies that were born and one of which was reducing food waste and another was um, increasing food access for all
2: because i think this this topic has come up quite a bit in in the pandemic particularly once you you know it sort of lockdown started and people started panic buying and you know people were saying there's enough food there's enough food but there's this big there's always been this big de- big disconnect between the supply and the need and that that was already in play i assume i mean widely but in santa barbara as well
1: Exactly. A lot of the food sources do come from outside of the county, um, and so we do have a, I guess, centralized or, you know, delocalized food system, which affects the whole supply chain in the food industry.
2: And so how did the the Community Food Collaborative come together?
1: So after the pandemic hit, um, we just began looking at ways that we could use our distribution channels, relationships, and networking mindset to serve the community in a different way. So we just started reaching out to our partners to learn how the pandemic was affecting them and and what else we could do to support. So as you mentioned, SB Act um, is one of our partners, and we learned from them, CityNet and New Beginnings Counseling Center, that our neighbors experiencing homelessness were abruptly unable to access their normal sources of food. And at the same time, we were seeing the disruption um, at local restaurants and the distribution of, from farmers. Um, so having to seize their normal operations put them in a precarious position. And we saw the opportunity to support both by raising funds to purchase um, meals per, per, or made with local ingredients. Uh, so so yeah.
2: the S B side was kind of the need, which is where, where the most acute um, food insecurity was?
1: Yeah, there was a number of populations, they're at risk, but the unsheltered population for for sure took a hit because the ways that they normally get food were just abruptly shut down. Congregate meal sites were no longer um, acceptable, you know, with CDC guidelines. They weren't able to panhandle anymore because people weren't out and about the way that they used to be. Um, And a lot of charitable feedings happened through churches or faith-based organizations, which rely heavily on volunteers, many of which had to stay at home due to shelter-at-home orders. So very quickly, they went from, you know, having food to, to not having food. And unfortunately, they don't have a back stock because they live with what they can carry. Um, and so it was something that needed to be addressed quickly.
2: And then on, so that's on the acute need side. But then on the supply side, I, I think you're really familiar with this. And most people listening will not even know what food rescue is or kind of understand it. So can you walk us through kind of what was happening between both the restaurants, but also like the suppliers that supply the restaurant or, or, or even bigger food service things, right? There was a giant overstock of stuff that would normally have been put into the pipeline that was, I assume, either sitting in trucks or sitting in warehouses.
1: Exactly. So in general, Food Rescue just focuses on excess food, say at restaurants or grocery stores that had already been ordered. But when COVID hit, when all the restaurants had to close down or grocery stores were impacted, now, like you said, there was a backstock at distributors um, or at the schools that had to shut down. And so very quickly, we learned that there was an excess, like you mentioned, in warehouses that we could utilize um, and get to people that were hungry. So even before the Community Food Collaborative, we quickly activated and got some food from Cisco Foods in Oxnard that would have gone to waste and got it to another chef who volunteered to cook that food um, as, as a quick response and get that out to the homeless population. And while we were doing that, we were in conversation um, with CityNet and SB Act on how to develop a more sustainable plan.
2: And when when you are rescuing this food, both normally and then subsequently, are you usually purchasing it or it's actually donated?
1: No, all of this food is donated. It's um, generally what we get is on the prepared side of things, um, prepared meals that are the grab and go at local grocery stores or caterers that might have extra food. Um, our local food bank does a significant amount of grocery rescue as well. So getting all of the extra bread and non-perishable food items for distribution um, so anything that needs to be pulled off the shelf for one reason or another, maybe it was overstocked, maybe it's getting close to its expiration date, then that would be pulled and donated to an organization because it's still perfectly safe to eat, um, and that way we can get it out through our nonprofit network in Santa Barbara.
2: And are you usually are you sort of a matchmaker usually in in terms of your role? Is that really actually you're linking the the supply to to the charitable organizations who who actually do the need identification and distribution.
1: Exactly. I'll contact businesses that have extra food. So like you mentioned, distributors, um, restaurants, caterers, and just let them know that this is an avenue, that they're protected by the law, um, and that we do have hungry people. So most people are passionate about food um, and don't want to see it go to waste. So they're excited to get on board. Um, And then I reach out to nonprofits and kind of play, like you said, matchmaker, because Sometimes people think even a little bit of food isn't worth donating, but then we can find a nonprofit that's only serving, say, 8 to 10 people, and so that amount is perfect for them. So just learning what people have to offer as far as food donation goes and what the nonprofit needs and what they serve and just connecting those dots, um, sometimes bringing in a partner for transportation, um, such as Veggie Rescue. So our pilot project was with the Chumash Casino um, in Builton or we got it donated to this Builton Senior Center um, and they're located in San Inez, and so we had to engage Veggie Rescue, who picks up the food and transports it for us.
2: And how how are the shuttered restaurants and or hopefully previously shuttered restaurants, how did they get involved and what part did they play when you started the Community Food Collaborative?
1: Yeah, we we were just hearing the feedback from food donors and other food partners that the restaurants were closing and that they were sad about having to lay off their employees, trying to find ways that they could help knowing that there were a lot of food um, insecure members of our our community. And so we just, I don't know exactly how it happened, but we got in contact with Sherry Villanueva at Acme hospitality, who was trying to find ways to to support her staff and keep them on board because they really are like a family. Um, And so when we learned that she had to lay them off, um, we, you know, again, thought of the way to to keep some of them on board and actually purchase meals from them, which is, you know, more, um, I guess, just supporting the food system while we look at longer term solutions.
2: And so right with Acme, um, which is kind of the parent company to several local restaurants in Santa Barbara that Sherry runs, they opened a couple of their kitchens to then help. Were they using their own suppliers? Or you kind of worked together to link up between their suppliers and your suppliers to get food that they could then make for for the various other charitable organizations to distribute?
1: Yeah, in this example, she took the reins um, and just continued to use their normal suppliers. And we did choose to work with her because we know that she sources locally. Um, And so we wanted to make sure that we were keeping as much of the funds local um, and supporting the different farmers or food suppliers in our area.
2: And I think one of the things I was struck by is there's this there's the kind of disparate need amongst the different uh, food insecure communities in terms of uh, food banks are great but but you need certain things in place to be able to actually utilize the food from the food bank and how much need there was for actually prepared foods or prepared meals that either didn't require any heating or just a microwave. Could you kind of take us through that those those kind of important differences for the I, that I think a lot of people may not—it's easy to understand, but have been aware of or thought through.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We were a little surprised as well at how many different types of people could benefit from the prepared food. Not only is it you know our unsheltered population that doesn't have access to kitchens, but now with families having to stay at home and take on the additional responsibility of you know educating their their children while keeping their busy schedules, um, it was also. We learned useful for them to have some prepared meals just to give them a little bit of a break. Um, Senior citizens as well could benefit, especially since it was harder for them to get out to the grocery stores. And home delivery of prepared meals became even more critical during this time. Um, Something else that we learned about, which was something new for us, is the amount of farm workers who were... In a, in a new position because some of them still had to go to work but with the changed grocery store hours they had less ability to purchase food for themselves. Um, also oftentimes they live in shared living situations where they have to share a kitchen and now they were more nervous um, not being able to purchase you know desanitizing and, and um, stuff to make the kitchen safer they were now considering the risk of COVID and using a shared kitchen space or communal meal. Um, and so they also expressed a need for more prepared meals.
2: And so, does that mean in terms of what's being delivered, it, it's a kind of shift in the percentage of where the need is, or just they're just two separate pipelines?
1: They for like food bank distribution versus prepared meals, or? Correct, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, the food bank shifted their distributions to drive through distributions and still served a significant number of families. Um, and then the prepared food distribution was either at home delivery or through mostly home home delivery through local nonprofits. Um, and then for the unsheltered population, they actually went out to encampments and places that we know that unsheltered people are to hand out the food rather than encouraging them to congregate to get a meal.
2: And can we talk more about the overall impact of the program? Like kind of sitting where you're sitting now, which is, I think, maybe two months max from when you started what what do you feel like the impact's been where do you see um is it been able to expand or are you kind of still figuring out how it's going to work moving forward
1: yeah from our initial goal we've been able to expand a few more weeks since this is going on a little bit longer than we expected so currently we've distributed about 3500 meals um, to low-income families and those experiencing homelessness. We have currently enough funds to distribute 5,110 meals through July 3rd. So with more funds for the Community Food Collaborative, they would extend that service um, as much as they could. At the same time, when they were doing distribution, they learned that there's still a need for non-perishable items to get people through the times when a prepared meal wasn't being delivered. Um, So it's offshoot Food Bag Collaborative was created and they've provided about 1,000 grocery bags in just the first two weeks. Um, The distribution partner, Doctors Without Walls, shared that the goal is to distribute 7,200 bags through the end of August. Um, And with that, they're also raising funds to add tokens to the locals' farmer's market. So between the three of these efforts, it's, you know, the goal is to provide a variety of options for people that we're serving and encouraging them and enabling them to make healthy choices at the same time.
2: And where where has the restaurant side of it, do you feel like the program's been effective in putting restaurants back to work? Or has that really just, in terms of the community food collaborative itself, it's really just been in your partnership with Acme?
1: So far, it's been with Acme to, there's a lot of overhead at restaurants and to spread it out seemed like not the efficient way because they needed, you know, a significant source of income to make it worth rehiring a staff member so they were able to bring back a few staff members um, and we actually even engaged their staff members to hand out meals to unsheltered populations so that CityNet staff could focus on the social work side of what they normally do since all of this is really outside the realm of of what they do the direct distribution of food um, but it was such a great need that everyone just stepped in to fill the role and as time went on we looked at creative ways to employ those who were underemployed um, and keep the social workers doing the work that they do best. So we actually ended up using some of ACME's employees to to hand out meals as well.
2: Great. All right. We're going to take a break and we'll be back to talk with Julia Blanton of the Community Environmental Council about COVID-19 relief efforts in Santa Barbara. Stay with us.
0: This
1: episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. A cherry isn't just a cherry. When it comes to tart cherries, the wonderfully U.S. grown Montmorency tart cherry variety is the cherry with more. They're available year-round, dried, frozen, canned, juice, and concentrate. U.S. Montmorency tart cherries are also one of America's super fruit, which means they're good for you. Tart cherries contain many antioxidants and beneficial phytonutrients, including anthocyanins, the pigments that give tart cherries their bright red color. And don't forget about flavor. U.S. Montmorency's unique sour-sweet profile make them an excellent addition to yogurt, oatmeal, salads, trail mix, and of course, a classic cherry pie. Learn more about the wonderfully U.S. grown Montmorency tart cherry at choosecherries.com.
2: Welcome back. We're talking to Julia Blanton from the Community Environmental Council about the Community Food Collaborative, a COVID relief effort in Santa Barbara supported by the foundation. So, Julia, I wanted to talk to you more about this kind of picture of who in Santa Barbara have been historically the most food insecure, and how has, if at all, that picture changed? Because I, I do think, obviously, most people's imagery of Santa Barbara is of beauty and luxury and prosperity, and and this kind of side of the city is is certainly not what's in most people's consciousness— They've been there. Maybe they have seen that it has a sizable homeless population, but this is bigger than that. So could you kind of take us through who tends to be the most food insecure in Santa Barbara and whether that's kind of the same or how it's changed under the pandemic?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Santa Barbara, like you mentioned, does have this um, separation because it's a very high cost of living, yet nearly 30 percent of the workforce is in hospitality, retail or agriculture, all of which have been heavily impacted and or normally low income jobs, which leave people on the the edge of need. So when pandemic hit, we very quickly saw people who historically never needed help or were seeking food assistance, all of a sudden needing help. Um, Already, like you mentioned, pre-COVID, 21% of adults were experiencing food insecurity in Santa Barbara. So that's one in five, um, and that's before COVID even hit. So definitely saw an uptick. The food insecure population is, is not just unsheltered peoples. It does fit the gamut or go across the spectrum. Students, um, about 40% of students are or food insecure, low-income families, senior citizens, Um, Unfortunately, we've learned that Hispanics are nearly twice the rate of food insecurity as non-Hispanic whites. So in Santa Barbara, that looks like 15% of of the white population being food insecure, whereas 30% of the Hispanic population is. Um, And we've seen just an amplification, it really is across the board where we're seeing the different populations experiencing food insecurity um, and needing help. Or having to choose between paying bills, paying rent, or purchasing food. Um, yeah.
2: So I think you're saying the overall picture of who tends to suffer from food insecurity that hasn't changed dramatically. It's more just the 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 magnitude of that. Exactly. And just break it down, because I think it's, it, it's a little bit easier for people to say, oh, well, of course, homeless people would need food and all those things would happen. But out of this kind of general population of need that you're talking about in San Barbara, the homeless population is how small a component of it?
1: I don't have exact numbers, but it, it definitely is a small part. I wish I had something more solid for you. But um, typically speaking, what I've heard from local food banks is that even you know a family having an unexpected car expense or in this case an unexpected paycheck that's enough to put them at the edge of not knowing where their next meal might come from so it's definitely you know a bigger problem for for families and the people like you said that others wouldn't expect needing food assistance
2: and a large percentage of people who who are working they're just not working at either wages or with consistency that's sufficient to to keep up exactly so since we talked about a little bit that food rescue was something you were already doing do you feel like the pandemic is going to reshape your work or you because you kind of mentioned like you were hoping it would just be a sort of for a period of time or are you starting to feel like it's not going to be the same moving forward
1: yeah, it's just accelerated our work. I think the network that we were building was meant, you know, for longevity. Um, the pandemic has just has brought it forward. In 2018 and 2019 together, we rescued about 38,000 pounds, but so far in 2020, we've rescued over 80,000 um, pounds. So we're just wow. seeing an increase of donations. Yeah, yeah, and bringing more attention to um, our network and our partnerships. So. In addition to these increased donations, we've been able to engage more partners and learn about different nonprofits who are interacting with these low-income families and sharing their need. Um, so we had already had big ideas for the future of our network, how we could continue to promote collaboration, get different nonprofits working together to work efficiently, bringing in different sectors to show how intertwined our goals are, how reducing waste and protecting our environment and feeding people really all come together with food rescue. I had dreamt of creating a network of community kitchens that could receive this rescued food and prepare it or repackage it, giving us more time to get food to those who need it, or just providing an option for people who had an inability to cook for themselves, whether it be a lack of time, a lack of knowledge, or lack of access to kitchen space. So with the pandemic, it really just moved these goals forward and highlighted them for people who weren't seeing the need before. We also saw an example of this community kitchen dream that I have in um, the Salvation Army Santa Maria Corps in Santa Santa Maria. Um, So with some of this food from Cisco, it was transported by Veggie Rescue up to Santa Maria, where they were able to increase the number of meals they were making from 120 meals daily to 900 meals daily for distribution through their partner organizations. It's just huge to think about the impact of food that might have ended up in the landfill or likely would have ended up in the landfill now being reprocessed and getting out to people who who could eat it. Um, So the goal now is to expand that, um, you know, have a number of kitchens that can receive this food and bring down the cost of prepared meals for distribution through our partners.
2: And so these community kitchens would be like more permanent facilities rather than a reuse facility to serve this function and need?
1: Yeah, I mean, we're looking at using shared space rather than opening a kitchen that's just for that purpose, but but utilizing underused kitchens. So if a kitchen's not being used in the evening or on the weekends, we could bring in volunteer chefs to use rescued food and create meals for distribution. So it is really about sharing resources throughout the county and partnering together to make something happen.
2: You, you also mentioned those, you know, much bigger numbers in terms of the quantity of food that you've rescued and, and reused. What are you hearing from the suppliers that you work with who usually have this excess food and obviously have more? Are they kind of, are they saying to you like, well, we hope in the next two months, we actually won't have very much to give you? Or do you feel like this is systemic in the food system right now? So it's kind of these efficiencies exist where it's just always going to be there or you're not really worried about it going away?
1: Yeah it's it's complicated because the goal is always to to not have excess um, but there's so much that's unpredictable so that there will inevitably be some amount of excess. It might not be to the same level but there always needs to be a channel or a procedure in place to to utilize that extra food. Um, right now what we're learning from some of the restaurants is a change in purchasing options. So before COVID, they were able to order on a daily basis exactly what they needed or were anticipating for the next day. Now, since the supply chain has been disrupted, they have to think a little bit more forward. They can only order two to three times a week, so they're just not as adjustable. So even at the restaurant side of things, as, you know, from day to day, the community needs change or comfort level in going out to restaurants, there could be even excess on that level. And then when you bring that up to the distributor, likewise, they don't know or can't predict exactly what the needs were or are. And so they have to prepare and have what restaurants might need, but that could change on a daily basis. So we do see the need for food rescue and extra food to be ongoing. Um, It's just, you know, unpredictable.
2: But it sounds like from that under under unpredictable nature you're not terribly worried that like suddenly things get much improved six months there will be no excess food to be have it just it sounds like it just seems inevitable because of the uncertainty and inefficiencies that there's ultimately is a supply
1: exactly exactly and there's other situations that you know just come about so for example with the fires and power shutoffs if a kitchen or grocery store or any place um has a power shutout and the refrigeration is going to be affected, we need an avenue to quickly uh, you know, offload that food and get it to another area that does have power and can serve that food rather than letting it go to waste.
2: I see. And are you the main group that's doing this in Santa Barbara County right now, or are there several
1: so the food bank does a significant amount of grocery store rescue. Um, we stepped in to fill the gap from restaurants and prepared food recovery. But I think the goal together is to build a countywide network that encompasses all of the different food rescue efforts, so that we can, you know, work more in uniformity and have a a, a plan or a clear system in place. So where they the food bank will rescue from grocery stores we might rescue from restaurants and veggie rescue gleans from local farmers and so we're just working together to make sure that all areas of the food system are covered
2: and do you feel like there or are you in touch with a network of similar providers in throughout california or is this how how unique i guess i'm asking is this kind of program to santa barbara county
1: yeah, absolutely. This is something that's growing. Um, there's growing attention. We are learning from an example organization in an Orange County who's been around a couple more years from us, called Waste Not OC. Um, and I think it's still unique to have this collaborative approach. Oftentimes, people are very siloed um, or you know busy, and it's difficult to collaborate sometimes. So, I think it's new to promote this collaboration and work together, but I feel like it's an avenue that will really start growing in California throughout different counties.
2: Well, I also, I love that it's an intersection between environmental action and food justice and, and, and food resources, because oftentimes those are kind of, to me, like separate avenues and they don't come together. And I assuming it, in some ways it's the funding that the Environmental Council gets that enables this unique rescue operation to happen.
1: Exactly, exactly. Even when talking with current organizations that were doing food rescue on some level, you know, they were looking at the one side of it of feeding people and not realizing at the massive impact that has in diverting that food from the landfill. Um, when food, you know, is wasted, all of the resources that went into producing that food are wasted. And then in the landfill, it breaks down into methane. Uh, Which is twenty times more potent than carbon dioxide at global, you know, creating global warming. So it's critical to keep that out um, of the landfill. And just like you said, it's it's a great intersection and opportunity for organizations that might not have otherwise connected or talked to to come together for a common goal.
2: Yeah, no, I think that doesn't get brought up in the conversation. And I know we talked to you earlier about what's been going, what World Central Kitchen has had going, and with frontline. Foods. Have you had more interaction or an update from them on what they're doing? Because I, because their dialogue tends to be much more about need and responsiveness and reusing chefs, and a little bit less about there's actually this great environmental benefit to what they're doing as well.
1: Yeah, I haven't had a very recent conversation, but a couple weeks ago, I spoke with Jason, director of procurement. Correct me. I might be wrong. Um, but he lives in Ventura County and works with World Central Kitchen. And he was sharing that, you know, pre, pre-COVID, they, in disaster response, they would open up like one central kitchen to prepare a bunch of meals. But the, since this disaster was different, they activated to hire the local restaurants and, and put people back to work. So I think they're an adaptable organization as well. Um, and, again, motivations might be slightly different. I don't know if they participate in food rescue but I could imagine it it only makes sense um so we're just just like them kind of adapting to the different needs at hand
2: well it seems like a new a, a new horizon as much as uh, they they've got the the kind of uh, uh ready meal sort of supply chain down that the the link that you could provide from your experience might be uh well with well worth exploring with them for as as we get through things so i wanted to Absolutely. ask you what you What's your outlook? I mean, I know you don't have a crystal ball and it's really fast moving, but do you have some kind of very near-term and longer-term expectations, like even just for the next couple of months, for next six months, where where you might be a year from now, or how far do you feel like you can even look out?
1: Yeah, <clears throat> like you said, that's a slightly difficult question, but we, we've we been continuing to check in with our nonprofits and different partners about the needs in our community. And as different um Programs begin to shut down. We just expect that the needs to go up. There's a high um, likelihood that more people might experience um, homelessness where they might not have before because they are facing eviction from not being able to pay rent for the last couple of months. Um, So yeah, we're still just hearing that the need will continue and we have to find more affordable, sustainable ways to to meet that need. Um, How quickly we'll be able to engage, you know, just depends on how quickly we can get funds and, and move some of these conversations forward. But I feel like the energy within the nonprofits is, is very positive and that people are very willing to work together. So um, yeah, I just imagine moving forward some of these conversations, maybe activating a few more community kitchens and finding ways to bring the, the meal costs down and, f- and developing programs that not only serve this immediate need, but will prepare us for, for the next disaster because unfortunately, as we know, it, this won't be the
2: last one yeah unfortunately so you said right now you have funds to run through july and would, to keep the community food collaborative going through then is that mm-hmm. but you're i also think you said you you you'd like to think that would be enough but you anticipated the need being there for many months after that
1: Absolutely. Yes. So with more funds, we'll be able to serve more people through the collaborative. And then again, we're also looking at ways how the collaborative could shift. And as restaurants are able to reopen and have some normal sources of income, we might be able to shift to more of this community um, kitchen model or, you know, using more recovered food to bring the cost down so that we can feed more. Um, I envision a hybrid in different areas for, to serve different needs. Um, so it's a couple different programs, but all within the same mission of, of feeding people, bringing the cost down, working together with other nonprofits, and just adapting to the, to the current need.
2: Well, and I think that point you made is really a good one for people to keep in mind that you're anticipating that even if everything with the pandemic in terms of public health improves, you're still anticipating the the impact of the economic implications of it and that that would create continued food insecurity, right? That's what you were kind of stitching together.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we're already looking at or talking to different organizations that serve farm workers, students, seniors, um, again, the unsheltered population and and asking them, you know, what are you seeing? What, it and, and it's exactly what you just said. We're expecting the need to go on and we're expecting to have to find different solutions. Um, and I think working together is the, is the best way to do that. So some of these groups that have stepped up to handle direct distribution will be needing to step back and return to their normal operations as a nonprofit. So we will continue to look at different ways to, to meet those needs.
2: And are there ways the folks listening to this podcast can help?
1: Yeah, I would say considering a donation to SBC Food Rescue, the community food collaborative, which is sponsored by SB Act or other nonprofit partners. Um, depending on the area that, that you live in, I would encourage you to find out what the local resources are and volunteer if you're able to. Um, I also encourage individuals to Pay attention to their neighbors because sometimes there's a lot of shame associated, or those who need help the most don't know how to access benefits. So, if you're aware, then you can share that with your neighbors. Um, and then, if you work in the food industry, then consider donating your surplus food to a, a local nonprofit. Um, yeah,
2: great. That's I think people will want to know that, and I think there are a lot of people out there who want to help and want to do more because um, it. Concerns everybody that um, these problems are are still still so great. All right, after the break, Julia Blanton's gonna share her Julia moment. Get in touch, send us an email or a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org, or better yet, tweet us at juliachildjcf and let us know what you think about today's show or share your ideas for future guests. Stay with us. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in
0: the kitchen, who is going to see?
2: From Julia's Immortal Words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory moment or how she's inspired them in their career. Okay, Julia Blanton, what's your Julia moment?
1: Most of what I know about Julia is through interviews, presentations, and of course I've seen the movie Julia and Julia.
2: Um, <laughs> but most
1: <laughs> uh, most of what stuck with me is just how once she found her passion, she ran at it with a strong curiosity, dedication, and commitment. She was never detoured. Um, did det- Yeah, and she was just a super hard worker who focused on endurance from the very beginning, giving her all to each of her endeavors, the cookbooks, culinary schools, TV shows, mentoring. She did it all, and and she did it well. Um, So I think the same work ethic that I've developed is seeking to learn as much as I can to make the biggest impact possible.
2: Great. Well, thank yeah. you very much for sharing your, your, your Julia moment, Julia, and also uh, sharing with us about the Community Food Collaborative and how important that's been and how it sounds like it's been working and the need is still there. And we hope uh, that you're able to keep going as long as it's needed. And we hope to continue to stay in touch and, and uh, learn more about food rescue and, and how it's either, uh, you, you know, it's kind of one of those jobs, right, where actually the best goal is if you no longer have that job.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for your time, for your support, for sharing our work with a greater audience. Um, It's been a pleasure speaking with you.
2: Likewise. And thanks everyone for listening. So to learn more about the Community Environmental Council, you can go to CECSB.org and it's at CECSB on Twitter and Instagram and CEC underscore SB on Facebook. You can also go to SBCFoodRescue.org And that has all the different ways you can help that Julia talked about. And if you want to find out more about the Santa Barbara Alliance for Community Transformation, it's at SBACTnow on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And their website, it's SBACT.org. Coming soon, the Julia Child Award announcement. And more summer news you won't want to miss. So please follow us at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF. And I'm at T. Shulkin on Twitter. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks, as always, to my co-producer of the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Amanda Wang. Our theme song is New French Worn by Novi Valtorni. Please remember to give us a review. It really helps new listeners discover the show. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage radio network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member.